0: I'm not sure it's the sale of the century, Um, just to remind people, uh, UBS had a very viable strategy of its own prior to the events of March the 15th, Um, and in the end, we were faced with a position where we felt the right thing to do for the system and also for our stakeholders was to step in and effectively rescue Credit Suisse. Um, And we all benefited from that because the consequences of resolution, which could have happened uh, unequivocally, and the FSB has said that too, would have meant significant contagion in the system. So uh, the result then, since the deal's now going quite well, everybody's saying it was the sale of the century, but at the time it was actually a very high risk um, uh, problem to deal with. The integration is going very well. I was very lucky, we as a board and the shareholders were very lucky to get Sergio Amotti back, um, who knew the um, bank inside out had already downsized in the relevant areas. And this is a massive integration. As I said, it's the first time ever two G-SIFIs, or G-SIBs as they're now called, were put together. Um, The market likes what we're doing so far. The relatively easy bit was done first, which was the initial downsizing. But to put it in context, Stephanie, as you know, uh, Credit Suisse had 1,100 legal subsidiaries. It's a very messy, convoluted organizational structure. And as anybody who's done integration knows, that's the bit you need to tackle to get the costs out. So I think 2024 is going to be a very hard year of heavy lifting to, as we publicly said, merge the parent banks by June, merge the significant subsidiaries by June, and then we can start really attacking those allocated and stuck costs.
1: So you mentioned June. Is is that going to be a sort of key milestone that shareholders and others should be looking at? Or, Or when will you say, actually, we have now done the hard work?
0: Well, I think we've done the hard work on the exit of 2026 when we've given our exit rate and our uh, cost-income ratio goals and our and the fuller costs that we'll take out. But I think as we get through 2024, organisationally, we'll be in a much better position and then we can really start tackling a lot of stock costs. There was a lot of talk
1: uh, at the start of people trying to get to grips with the extent of the outflows from Credit Suisse, how they were being dealt with. So what's the... Do you, are you confident that that is all behind you now? That you have, and you've resolved? I
0: think so. We we showed in Q3 and Q, um, and we will show that those outflows slowed down and in fact reversed. Um, we actually have had net new money both in the deposit um, uh, channels as well as the wealth management channels. So we're confident that we're rebuilding that now. The degree to which we can make up all of that loss, we don't know. I mean, obviously, uh, clients had other alternatives. There was some. Funds went to the Swiss internal banks, some of the foreign banks, particularly in Asia, uh, gathered some of those monies from Credit Suisse. But we feel pretty optimistic now that um, people feel very comfortable with UBS as a brand.
1: And I mean, one of the questions that people had, having seen, and obviously there had been problems with Credit Suisse building up, um, there had been approach to there been a risk, a tolerance for risk or a risk appetite that was certainly different. Um, from, from UBS. How are you finding it as you onboard the Credit Suisse clients, that adjustment of, of risk appetite? How is it working?
0: Well, I, I think Credit Suisse had four different businesses. So you have to specify where the issues were. And I've been very public about the issues at Credit Suisse were in the investment bank. Uh, by and large. Um, That's where we have the cultural issues, that's where the losses had been made, that's where um, I felt there had been bad behavior. Um, What we've now got with the integration is um, Credit Suisse people who come into UBS feel very comfortable with UBS. It is a one-firm firm. I think Sergio has done a good job of welcoming people. I was pretty outspoken at the time about the cultural risks, and I do believe that culture is a defining challenge for any institution. But on the whole, we've been pleasantly surprised by what we've got. The Swiss bank is very similar to UBS, so that's kind of plug and play from a cultural point of view. The asset management division wasn't really big enough to make a difference. And the wealth management business, bar certain areas, has just been added on. As you know, we did downsize the investment bank. And indeed, in fairness to Axel and Uli, they've been trying to downsize the investment bank at Credit Suisse anyway. So to a large extent, a lot of bad actors had gone. Uh, and the people we've brought in on the whole have actually, you know, is worked quite well. We've been quite surprised.
1: And just sort of stepping back a bit, I mean, you talk about, uh, there were various outcomes that could have happened with Credit Suisse. I mean, one overwhelming people f- f- feeling that people had after was, wow, this has been building in kind of plain sight for a long time, and I know that you had sort of been pre- preparing quietly for sort of whatever was going to happen with Credit Suisse, because it was obvious that something was going to come to a head. What, what lessons do you, looking back, do you think the regulators should have been tougher? Should they now be tougher? Uh, I mean, it's hard to see an exact... Obviously, there isn't going to be the same situation uh, arise because there's no other big bank in, in Switzerland. But it, should they be taking lessons from that whole...
0: Well, as you know, there is a parliamentary investigation at the moment, and there are all sorts of other uh, reports coming through, some interesting, some not so interesting. Uh, there's a little bit of revisionism going on from certain quarters. Um, I think, and I've said this before, I don't think the regulators had sufficient powers in Switzerland to enforce compliance. It's very clear that um, Finber knew what was going on and had warned the board and management at Credit Suisse. But for some reason, Credit Suisse management and board did not respond sufficiently. Um, So I think we'll deal with that. And in fact, the finance minister did speak about this yesterday on an interview with Francine. Um, So let's not jump to that. But the big message here is that there was clearly a failure by board management and the shareholders of Credit Suisse to hold Credit Suisse accountable for a viable business model. Now, I don't think it's the duty of regulators to... A pine or police a business model, I think that is the duty of board and shareholders. And I think that's one of the big lessons we'll learn here, how is that achieved going forward. There are ways regulators can reinforce that. The UK is the senior manager regime the OCC in the US as camels, the asset and earnings, where they can police it. But ultimately, I think shareholders have to be far more active and hold boards much more accountable, which is why I'm a big supporter of the senior manager regime or something like that in Switzerland.
1: And where do the risks lie if you're looking in the financial system broadly? Quite a lot of optimism now, relative to maybe six months ago in, among you know, the streets of, of Davos, uh, what would you worry about?
0: what are we? Well, I mean, the about? last time I said this, I got into trouble, and uh, uh, one of my major investors immediately jumped in and honed in an area. I just want to make a general point since two thousand and eight, uh, there has been a massive movement of assets from the regulated banking sector into the NBFI, the so-called shadow banking sector. The numbers are $220 trillion to $240 trillion. All I'm saying is that since that sector is not sufficiently regulated, by definition, that is where you will probably see crises coming out. I'm not sure those crises will be systemic. I think they'll be more of a fiduciary nature. Um, but they can have a waterfall effect. So I do think, and we know that the FSB is now looking at shadow banking and seeing if they can get more visibility into it. So I'm not going to pick on one specific asset class in that sector, it could be anywhere. you're so going to have Mark Roan back on your old Well, market. Mark Roan will immediately Probably behind it. And John yeah. Gray and everybody else. But uh, uh, And I did not talk about private credit. They did. Um, I'm not sure that a $1.5 trillion private credit market is particularly systemic. But the point is that these things can happen a snowball effect. So I do think that regulators are looking in the wrong place. Looking to over-regulate the banks, looking for more capital in the banking system is the wrong issue. All right. I'm going to push back a bit on this because
1: obviously it's not in in isolation that uh, we've decided to regulate banks much more than these other institutions. It's because actually now several times of looking... It's been harder to identify systemic or serious risks in the non-banking sector, largely because of the lack of leverage. You know, speaking as an economist, it's very hard to get a big crisis without a lot of leverage. And if you look, the banking system has a structural way that they can then make, a, very easily turn some, a financial problem into a broader economic problem that you just don't see in these institutions. So they have to be breaking the law. When you talk about fiduciary crisis, they have to be exercising fraud
0: on quite a grand scale. No, fiduciary crisis could just be duty of care. It's not breaking the law. It's still advised management. It's getting into exotica. That hasn't been sufficient. So let's give you an example. Crypto happened not to be a crisis because that $3.6 trillion market capitalization at the peak had not got into the mainstream of financial housekeeping, if you want. But if it had, had although it wasn't breaking the law, it could have had a snowball effect. So I think, you know, just because the regulators say that we know banks and there's leverage there, and by the way, 08 happened, right, which I accept, banks needed more capital and so on. Just to say, as indeed one senior regulator said to me, the more we get assets out of the banking sector to shadow banking, we don't care because there's no leverage is actually missing the point in many ways. And by the way, there is implicit leverage in uh, low investment grade products and so on by definition is part of the capital stack. I guess
1: comes back, it comes back to, I mean, of course you're right. And then I think the focus would have to be on specific areas, particularly if you have very illiquid assets that are being claimed to be easily tradable and liquidity, that sort of thing. But I guess, I guess it's just the, 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 other, the main point is just because something's a lot of money doesn't mean that we, maybe we should be paying a bit more attention to it, but it doesn't mean immediately that it has to be regulated more because it may have underlying assets
0: no, but what I'm saying is if you don't know what the risks are in that 220 to $240 trillion pool, that's probably a little bit of an oversight.
1: So the interesting challenge that you have at the moment is people think that you should be trying to make, to targeting more, more higher return, making more money. Do you think you're not ambitious enough? In you the mean on the return? Yes, UBS on
0: return on... I think we measures? have given, um, you know, a 15%... Uh, target um exit r o e at the end of two thousand twenty six you know as a as a uh, as a guideline and obviously there may be upside on that um, I think we are not being cautious, I think we're being very practical i've also said all along that u b s is a global bank. it is a wealth manager primarily and it's very important on March the nineteenth that we restricted the amount of our capital that we were put at risk in the investment bank and took it down even from where it was. So if we look at where our goals are, we look at people like Morgan Stanley, who gave their earnings yesterday and reaffirmed their own ROT targets at 20%. So I think that there's plenty of room for UBS to perform and perform well. But rather than overpromising, let's integrate the two operations, then let's get a proper pro forma business, and then by 2026, we'll have proven the case. And I think then there is significant upside for UBS. Because if you look
1: across the market, I mean, with, with so much focus on the wealth management, where you c- can reliably get returns with a, with a two in front of it and not a one, I mean, is that
0: what you're expect? Would you be disappointed if you weren't getting to that over the next I, couple of years? I, I think we've given guidance that we're comfortable to stick with for the time being. And my view is it's always better to be cautious in the guidance you give. And if you over-deliver, that's great.
1: Have you thought about moving the primary listing to the U.S.? Could probably moving the what? Moving the primary listing to the U.S. No, the kind of thing that people at Bloomberg think about.
0: No, you don't that'd think. be quite a good headline, though. I quite like it. Well,
1: you know, cause I thought I'd just check. You know, we should just continue. I get to lynched on Barnhousestraat. No, I can see there would be certain challenges attached to it. But as a straight it, it, you would also could see how you would get an immediate valuation boom and of course we're seeing, we are
0: seeing some of that movement going across the internet. I think there is huge value to being Switzerland and Swiss based March the 15th Switzerland faced potential huge embarrassment in financial markets by March the 19th when the deal was done Switzerland had reaffirmed because it had a strong savior in UBS that Switzerland is the center of global wealth management that is a significant calling card for Switzerland. So that's why I get somewhat irritated when people say the, the bank's balance sheet in relation to GDP. I'm not sure that's a particularly meaningful statistic anyway. What's meaningful is the nature of our business, and the nature of our business is that we're primarily a wealth manager, which is a fee-based business, right? I think it's, it is a gold carrot standard for Switzerland to have UBS here and to be based here, and by the way, all the other parts of the Swiss ecosystem in wealth management to benefit from that too.
1: Do you have... The answer is maybe no, but there is quite a lot of discussion now around the reopening of negotiations between Switzerland and the EU. Do you have... Uh, do you have a stake in that as UBS? Do you have well,
0: a... Well, we're a third a country. Contest, okay? as, as the EU likes to remind us, we in the UK are both third countries. so um, And that's just the nature of the club and the EU And you make a decision. The EU itself has got fundamental problems, and you've heard me talk about this before. I mean, um, European equity market capitalization as a percentage of the overall pie is 50% less than what it was 13 years ago. Uh, Banking in Europe accounts for 80% of lending. It's almost the inverse in the US. It's no surprise that access to markets allowed the US and access to credit to recover just more quickly. So the EU has, Switzerland, by the way, is a market-based system. So UBS has a lot to bring in that in terms of helping, but the EU has got to understand, and indeed China understands this uh, potentially, that they need to redevelop their banking union, capital markets union, and so on. There's see like, no sign of that, though. No, there is a sign of that. There's been a. There's, I know it's a pity you didn't. Um, uh, Francine didn't ask Christine because recently the president of the Eurogroup, Pascal O'Donoghue, they've done work in Europe that realise that Europe is actually positively. Not benefiting from having vibrant capital markets to the tune that significant pools of money are moving into the US, which is the only viable market. So I do think that it's going to take a long time. Things in Europe always take a long time. But I think Europe realizes that they need strategically access to better markets and somehow to work out the banking union despite the European vested interests.
1: But yes, but. Similar reports have been done for at least 20 years, and we could probably go back and find 50 year old work, But I, I, there's been an understanding of those benefits, but there's not been the political will. And I don't
0: think, do you see political will? Well, I mean, one of the tragedies of the EU is that Britain left, right? And Britain was a leader in market proficiency and skill and expertise, and Europe itself is essentially a closed market. So I think Europe is now having to find its way without Britain. And I think that has been the difference.
1: I spoke to one CEO uh, just in advance of coming here and asked him about why he was coming, what he expected to gain from Davos. And he said, there's lots of things people talk about in Davos I don't care about. What I do care about is finding out from my peers how they're solving for the possibility that we might be back in the 1930s and heading for some kind of global conflict, looking at the geopolitical risks around. How do you solve for that? Does it have, how does geopolitical risks that we see affect the way you think about UBS business?
0: Well, you have to think geopolitically, and it's a a minefield we have. The big question in the room, which is U.S.-China relations, China's 20% of global GDP, 65% of marginal growth over the last decade. Um, You know, obviously, it doesn't suit anybody to have the U.S. and China at war. And us being neutral, essentially, uh, a European institution in the middle of that. You know, we saw what happened with the Ukraine conflict when sanctions were imposed. And for the first time ever, a number of countries joined sanctions. This is not good, right? So clearly, we take these into account. Um, but you just have to have a judgment on this. My personal view is that, you know, the U.S. does almost $700 billion of trade with China. I think both sides of the House and the U.S., particularly going into election year, are anti-China because that is useful rhetoric. But I think the Americans are very practical people. So I suspect the hotspots will be focused on technology and defense and the rest of the stuff carries on. And certainly I think President Xi's meeting at the end of last year, with President Biden was a big breakthrough. So yes, we see the Taiwan risk, we see this, but we think we can navigate those. So um, geopolitics is just a fact of life.
1: But being a truly global wealth management firm, how has it affected the way you think about diversification, China itself? Well, Are you reviewing that all the time?
0: UBS's growth primarily will come from two sources. It will come from China, Asia, Greater Asia, and it will come from the United States where we have a significant subsidiary which we will continue to grow. And that is our strategy. So if China suddenly freezes, we have a problem, right? Um, I do not believe that that is a central case. I think that is a tail risk and we will react accordingly as indeed we did react when Russia and the Ukraine started and the sanctions came in, which were not popular Uh, Clearly, sanctions in any wealth management complex are not popular, but we will act in accordance with the law and in accordance with the business ethos.
1: I should ask you the same question that that, uh, Francine asked Christine Lagarde. How are you thinking about the U.S. election? Uh, You know, I'm just a humble banker. I mean, what do
0: I know about? You
1: You always have to start worrying when when people start talking about themselves as humble or anything when they have such a... Large financial institutions. Well, the
0: Brits made an empire out of that.
1: (laughs) So, I'm interested, we're we're nearly out of time, but obviously, having gone through, I mean, it did, you, you talked about culture right at the beginning. I mean, it looked like an almighty, despite a lot of the people involved all being Swiss, it seemed on the outside like an extraordinary culture clash, or at least was going to be an interesting journey to combine those two cultures. And culture, I mean, I worked at JP Morgan. It's so important at a bank. And somewhere like JP Morgan, they've done such a sort of extraordinary job of combining customer appeal with a very, very strong internal culture. How Have you changed the way you think about
0: institutional culture a result of the last... No, I I agree with you. I've always been a believer in culture. It's no accident that the survivors in 2008 were the firms that had... Everybody messed up, I get that. But the firms that had the strong cultures were the ones who were able to repair themselves and atone and move forward. Um, I think UBS is a very strong culture and the Germans have this phrase that the fish stinks from the head. So I think culture comes from the top. And that's why one of the reasons when we did the acquisition of Credit Suisse, we made these comments about culture. And we are trying to get people to come into what is a strong culture at UBS. I mean, you mentioned JP, it's interesting, people forget that. JP Morgan ceased to exist in 1999, and it was bought by Chase, which is why, as an ex-Morgan Stanley guy, we never called it JP Morgan. But you know, it's that's one um, of the amazing achievements. Yeah,
1: we think it's over, you know, hundreds of
0: years old. Absolutely, well done. Um, But anyway, but it has reaffirmed the culture, and that's very much Jamie bringing that top down as well, and then it gets through into every standard. And the way you reinforce culture is behaviour and example and punishment and so on. So I'm confident, you know, it's a a pity. I mean, Credit Suisse had a specific culture. You will remember back in the 90s and the early noughties, it had a culture of innovation, originality, entrepreneurialism. It was just allowed to go unchecked. So I think culture now, Dan Tarullo, when he was governor in charge of supervision at the Fed, wanted to try and regulate for culture. But it's impossible to regulate for culture. Culture is what it is, so you have to look at management standards, behavior, and so on.
1: Very quickly, um, you've, you've already kind of talked about expectations for uh, the successor for Sergio Motti. Um, well, not th- in any hurry, please. Yeah. <laughs> but you have, I mean, looking at the example of Morgan Stanley, uh, there's been you know, the words bloodless coup have been mentioned, a certain kind of timescale has been mentioned, but uh, will you be talking
0: more about that over the course of this. We will. I mean, by the way, I don't understand the bloodless coup because James, uh, for years, has had this worked out. And part of the reason I left Morgan Stanley when I did in June 19 was to make sure there was room for people to come up and be checked, and so it was actually very well thought out and planned. Yeah, it doesn't seem yeah. to be a criticism when you say, but, no, 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 but, but it's supposed to be a good Raku thing. coup sounds like you know it wasn't. It happened, uh, or it was sort of backroom deal or whatever. You know, at, at UBS we definitely one of the reasons when I brought Sergio back, the board brought Sergio back. Uh, one, I gave him two conditions. One is I needed him to be here for a certain amount of time to get through the integration. And secondly, I said, You have to get us a bench, a succession bench, right? Uh, which we're working on. And it takes us some time to work out what that bench is. And once you've identified that bench, then you don't just anoint that person, you've got to make sure that that person male or female, it has sufficient experience and breadth to be able to slot into that role. So, you know, uh, we will be open about it, but certainly uh, people in banking have a habit of saying if somebody's thinking about succession, then their chapter's over. Uh, Sergio's chapter is not over, so, um, you know, we really expect him to be around for a while yet. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Join Bloomberg
1: in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th for the future investor,